This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Law School Show. My name is Amos Vang, and I will be your host for this episode. Contemplare meliora, to envisage better things. It takes a strong leader to expect better things and to make such things a reality. As the old saying goes, with great power comes great responsibility, no matter where that power goes to. But what about Rideau Hall? What about the throne? What about representing the throne? How does one reach such an extent as to be appointed by Her Majesty the Queen as her representative in Canada? How does one incorporate contemplare meliora into such a role? Well, my guest for today is a person that has walked this very road. My guest is Canada's 28th Governor General, the Right Honorable David Johnston. Mr. Johnston was born in 1941 in Coppercliff, Ontario, Canada. He was raised in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and he would become a rising star in the world of hockey. Mr. Johnston's talents were recognized by Jimmy Skinner, a well-known scout for the NHL and a Stanley Cup-winning head coach of the Detroit Red Wings in the 1950s. However, instead of going to the NHL, Mr. Johnston went to Harvard University in 1959 beginning the Harvard saga of his life. Here, he would pursue a Bachelor of Arts in Government and International Relations, where he would graduate magna cum laude. During his time at Harvard, he also continued to flourish his own passion for hockey, and he would play for the Harvard Crimson. Mr. Johnston was awarded the John Tudor Memorial Cup as the MVP of 1962 to 1963, and twice was named to the All-American hockey team. His longtime friend, Eric Siegel, featured Mr. Johnston as Davy Johnston in Siegel's best-selling 1970 novel, Love Story. Back to Mr. Johnston. Mr. Johnston had even looked at a potential future with the Boston Bruins, but decided against it to pursue another career path, law. This begins the law and academia saga of his life. In 1965, Mr. Johnston graduated with a Bachelor of Laws at Cambridge University in England. And in 1966, Mr. Johnston graduated with a Bachelor of Laws at Queen's University in Kingston. Immediately after graduating law school, he became a distinguished law professor for the next 40 years. 1974, he became the Dean of the University of Western Ontario's Faculty of Law. In 1979, at 37 years of age, he became the principal and vice chancellor of McGill University, all while still becoming a law professor for McGill. This is also the same year that Mr. Johnston moderated the election debate between Prime Minister Joe Clark, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, and Ed Broadbent. 1984, Mr. Johnston would also serve as the moderator of the 1984 election debate between Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, Prime Minister John Turner, and Ed Broadbent. In 1999, Mr. Johnston became the president and vice chancellor of the University of Waterloo. His numerous achievements in the world of sports, law, politics, and academia 
would be recognized by Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Prime Minister Harper would nominate Mr. Johnston to the Governor General's office. And on October 1st, 2010, Queen Elizabeth II appointed Mr. Johnston as His Excellency, the Right Honorable David Johnston, the 28th Governor General of Canada. Serving as Governor General from 2010 to 2017, he would serve through Prime Minister Harper's final term and a part of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's first term. After his time in gov- as Governor General, rather, Mr. Johnston continues to be actively involved with many communities across Canada and would found the Rideau Hall Foundation. The U Sports Men's Hockey Championship Cup is named right after Mr. Johnston, all because of his amazing achievements over the years. Wow. Hockey player, law professor, dean, university president, university chancellor, governor general. This is how Canada knows him. But here at the Law School Show, we know him as something else. A legend. If there was ever anyone that truly embodied contemplare mediora and the complete mastery of ultra instinct, Mr. Johnston is that one. And Mr. Johnston joins me on the show today. Mr. Johnston, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Well, it's great to be with you, Amos, but that fellow sounds like he can't hold a job. <laughs> I know. Eh? <laughs> so let's start off from the beginning. What inspired you to go to law school? Oh, I think justice. Justice is the sense of fairness. And we as lawyers <clears throat> all take as part of our professional growth the effort for the continuous improvement of the administration of justice. And justice is different than, than the rule of law. We speak about the rule of law, but law is a statement of statutes or regulations or decisions of courts. Um, it's a static description of things. Um, it's the values that underline those laws that is key. You can write any constitution you want with flourishing words, but uh, if it does not stand for justice, which is fairness, it's uh, not worth the paper it's written on. So that constant quest for justice, which I would describe as fairness, is, uh, I think, that inspires so many of us to go into legal careers. Absolutely. And in my personal experience, what I found is law is philosophy in action. So it's very much a combination of also the different parts of society as well reflected in the course of law. And we see a lot of those values reflected in the legal system as well. And each one of us coming to law school, we bring our own unique set of values and our own belief systems as well. And with your experiences, I mean, like I said in the introduction, you've had such a, a diverse set of experiences throughout your entire life. And as a hockey player, I mean, well, as you being a hockey player, rather, I mean, having not just one, but two chances at the NHL, I mean, that first time uh, with Jimmy Skinner, how did you meet Jimmy, Jimmy Skinner? How did you have a chance to discuss a potential career with him, uh, with the NHL, with Jimmy Skinner? Well, the first thing I say, Amos, with respect to the law and what we love about it um, and the philosophy of law is that we should always be asking the question, does law work? Does this particular law work? The statute that was crafted and uh, brought into law 100 years ago, does it still meet current conditions, for example? And if it doesn't, uh, then we as lawyers should do something to change it, be sure it works. And that means it works for justice. Uh, with respect to hockey, um, 
the wonderful feature of hockey for me that I think applies to um, one's everyday life is it's the name on the front of the sweater and not the name on the back of the sweater that's important, that you learn to care for the other, work with the other, um, and suppress your own particular needs or aspirations to enhance the common good. I'm not sure whether it was Jimmy Skinner himself. It was a scout for uh, for the Detroit chain that visited our Sault Ste. Marie where I grew up. I think I was 15 and came to our home um, to uh, speak about the possibility of me going uh, to Southern Ontario to play junior A hockey. And my mother, who was uh, quite a disciplinarian and had a pretty clear sense of objectives, met uh, if it was Mr. Skinner at the door of the house and she took his hat and uh, said, um, let me get a cup of tea, Mr. Skinner, for you. And uh, but before you sit down, let me just ask you a question or so. Uh, if David went to uh, to Hamilton, I think it was the Hamilton Red Wings that uh, was the junior A team then, um, where do the boys go to school? And he paused for a moment. He says, well, I I, I think some of them go to, uh, you know, uh, uh, ooh, the school of Catholic Central, something like that. He says, well, you've got some boys that are university age, 18, 19, uh, do they go to university? He said, oh, no, he said, they're, they're busy playing hockey. So you don't really encourage the boys to be studying full-time. Well, they can't study full-time, Mr. Johnson, but they, we could probably do part-time. And she said, you know, Mr. Skinner, I think you've got other uh, more important things to do than this conversation. Gave him his hat, and that was the end of the conversation. Wow. <laughs> well, that, that was a very uh, historic moment, actually, not to, now in hindsight, because... In terms of doing that, you went to Harvard, you know, also a great career path as well. And you pursued, of course, as I mentioned, your undergraduate degree at Harvard. And I'm curious as to back then, what inspired you to go to Harvard for your undergraduate degree? Well, it was interesting, Amos. The principal of our high school, who was a very good man and a very good teacher, <clears throat> in fact, would not write the application um, reference for me um, when I was graduating, and I ticked off all the things that you would need, I think, for being a good candidate. Um, and uh, he said, uh, I don't want you going to a third-rate American university. And I said, sir, I'm, I'm sure there are third-rate universities there, but Harvard isn't one of them. Um, and he says, yeah, but if you go there, he said, you'll stay and we'll be lost to Canada. I said, I don't think so. I think I'll return to Canada. I love this country. But uh, I think uh, it's important for me to get as good a perspective I can from a good university. And they didn't write the letter. So I went down the hall to the history coach, who was also the football coach, and he said, I'll write the letter for you. He said, you've been a big frog in a really small pond. You've got to get your head knocked off by people that are meaner, tougher, stronger, faster than you are. And they were. It was a great experience. Certainly. And you also continued to play hockey during your time at Harvard as well for the Harvard Crimsons, all the way up until 1963. So back then in the 1950s and 60s, what was it like to transition from junior hockey to playing for NCAA Division I hockey back then? Well, we were really fortunate, fortunate in both fronts. Um, I've been so lucky, Amos, in my life to have remarkable coaches, mentors, counselors, etc. Um, and the coaches that I played for in Sault Ste. were absolutely top drawer. Very um, disciplinarian, very, very high expectations. You see, you treat them like professionals, they play like professionals, and very, very competitive. Uh, the team I played on last that won the 17 and under juvenile championship in Ontario had uh, had Phil and Tony Esposito on it. And Tony was a backup goaltender. And I say, people say, Tony Esposito, backup goaltender, come on. 
Well, Phil was 17, Tony was 14, uh, was a star at that. Lou Nanny played on that team as well, went on with Minnesota. And we had in about the same area, Wayne and Chico Mackey backbracketed back bracketed, uh, that year on that team. And then uh, Jeannie Bracco, who played with Pittsburgh. And then, of course, we had a good, good team. And certainly the quality of hockey was really important um, in Sault Ste. Marie at that time and subsequently. What I found in the Ivy League um, was, again, I played for a wonderful coach, Cooney Wyland, who had grown up in um, near Stratford, Ontario, with a grade 10 education. He was the first Harvard coach that um, was not a Harvard graduate uh, and a professional. He'd been a leading scorer in the National Hockey League in the 30s and then coached um, the Bruins in 39 and 40 and 41. And then uh, fell afoul of the, the then ownership and ended up as a, as, as a coach of Harvard, the first non-Harvard graduate, I say, to be a coach of the hockey, a coach of any sport. And um, he was marvelous. Um, and he used to say to, to us, you know, you boys are <clears throat> getting a Harvard education. I explained this to you uh, before the game. You got out in the first period and you haven't done it at all. He says, I've only got a grade 10 education. What's What's happening that I can understand it and you can't? <laughs> The second period was a lot different. Um, and for me, uh, Harvard was a marvelous experience. It, it was a great experience of, um, of intellectual development and psychological development and, and, and learning, I guess, to strive for excellence. Uh, but the hockey was striving for teamwork. And uh, I loved every minute of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that intellectual experience, we had another uh, Harvard alumnus on the show, Royston Gupta, a personal friend of mine. He actually went to Harvard Law for his law degree. And he also told me a similar thing as well. It was, it, it's a very, you, you meet people from so many, many different diverse backgrounds, what, whether you're in law or regardless of what uh, type of academic pursuit that you have at Harvard. And another person that was really influential uh, or really influential in the literary world was Eric Siegel, and you had a chance to know him personally. And like, who was Eric Siegel? And to what extent did Eric Siegel's work have an effect on your life as a legal academic? Well, Eric was a very interesting person. Um, at Harvard in those days, uh, unmarried professors often lived in the residences. Uh, and Eric, uh, Eric was a classics professor, and he lived in the residence. And it just happened his, his rooms or offices were on the same floor as ours. And I, I had two roommates who were also athletes. One was a basketball player and one was a baseball player. Eric had been a track member when he was at Harvard and then became a classic professor. So he, he used to run just about every morning and we would join him in turn at 6.30 in the morning to run along the Charles River. We kind of take turns. So we got to know him a bit that way. He was a very good classics professor, but he also um, was a very witty guy. And he, um, he wrote um, novels um, in the case of Love Story, a kind of romantic fictional novel and wrote scripts for uh, Broadway musicals, um, did um, uh, so, some theater, etc. So much so that he was not popular with the classics department that said you're a scholar of ancient Rome and uh, early Greece and, you know, wasting your time on Beatles music and so on. But, but Eric persisted, actually left Harvard for Yale and then later Oxford, where they were a little more tolerant of that. But um, he had a custom of writing novels based on real life stories and real characters and typically would change their name. And when he wrote Love Story, it was focused on um, a fellow who was uh, one of the Boston Brahmins, um, 
Winthrop was his real name and Governor Winthrop was the first governor of Massachusetts, played on the team um, and he fell in love with a, a Roman, Italian Roman Catholic girl um, and his parents opposed the marriage um, because of the class distinction and she died of leukemia. Um, so the story was built around that and and my, I was pictured as captain of the Harvard hockey team. I was not, but yeah, but Eric pictured that way. And he used my name for some strange reason, he called me David Johnson. And uh, um, that's how I figured in love story. Never got any royalties from the book. <laughs> but I mean, also, yeah. And, and also an interesting thing, though, I mean, to put that into perspective, love story in if you look at the cast for the film itself, which was also uh, supervised over by Eric Siegel, Tommy Lee Jones was in that film. And that was yeah. before he made it big, you know, so yeah, he was in our class, as a matter of fact. And really, you know, it's one of the was one of the, the characters. Uh, and there were other characters that, you know, I, I recognize the, the one I mentioned um, Winthrop that was played by Ryan O'Neill in the movie. Um, he was a wonderful guy, Adam Winthrop. He played on the junior varsity team. Uh, he was a, a tenacious fellow, but not a great skater. And um, the players were all um, good skaters. But that was Eric's um, particular panache. He, um, you know, picked up these stories and and um, wove them in. And the movie was Ryan O'Neill was playing the the lead role, and um, Meg Ryan, I think, was playing the female role. And and Ryan O'Neill couldn't skate. Um, and the hockey scenes took place at the Harvard rink uh, with the Harvard players. And it was Bill Cleary, who was then the coach, who actually played the, the role of, of Ryan O'Neill on the team. So they'd have Bill, who, could, who was a marvelous hockey player, doing the action scenes. And then they'd switch to Ryan. But you'd only see from head up because he was hanging onto the boards to stand up. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy but i mean it was great it was a great film that that had had some great uh, reviews coming out of it as well and it's still uh still legendary uh it, it featured a lot, a lot of legends as well such as one such as yourself mr johnston and uh it's certainly uh it, it didn't get good reviews from the classics department at harvard it's pretty syrupy <laughs> stuff and the theme from it is uh love is never having to say your story and as my wife would say that's all wrong <laughs> often saying you're sorry and please forgive me dear and i will do better i promise you <laughs> so, so I, I didn't take i didn't take that theme from love story uh from uh, what eric was prescribing that love is never having to say you're sorry <laughs> well that, that's certainly uh that's certainly something there <laughs> so and then at the end of your Harvard time, or coming close to your time at Harvard, or at the end of your time at Harvard, you once again thought about pursuing a career in the NHL, but this time with the Boston Bruins. But you then also turned it down to go into law. I mean, even being considered for the NHL once is already a huge, huge deal in any hockey player's life, let alone twice. It's like lightning striking the same place twice. But I, I mean, for you to have turned down both opportunities, I, I mean, it, it must have been so difficult to say no towards that. And I think, I mean, for, for myself, being being a 25-year-old and a lot of others who are maybe in their 20s or, or, or uh, late 20s or even early 30s or late 30s, turning down opportunities like, like these are really difficult if you're saying no to this opportunity to say yes to another opportunity. So you're, you're, you're too generous to suggest I was turning down anything. And it's at age 15. I mean, who knows who's going to make it to the NHL. Um, so that was, you know, entirely speculative. And, you know, I think my mother's 
guidance. And although I didn't like it in a way, she was absolutely right. Uh, I knew an education was really important and I was blessed with a, you know, a good brain and a good constitution and a curiosity. So that at that time was overwhelming in my mind. I was going to get into good education and, and Harvard being an Ivy league school, you're a scholar first and you're an athlete second. So 75% of us were supported with some kind of financial aid because the fees were very high. And um, I was the product of a recruiting effort for kids from public schools, from modest backgrounds. Um, and uh, so we had, we didn't have athletic scholarships. There weren't athletic scholarships. We had financial aid. So if you came and you're a great football player or baseball player, but you decided that uh, you wanted to be in the biochemistry labs at four o'clock in the afternoon um, because you're going into medicine, um, then you know, that's what you did. Uh, you, you didn't play football, or if you did, you did on a more part-time basis. When, when I graduated, um, th it was the six-team NHL. It was only four or five years later that the 30-team NHL came along and the draft then developed. There was not a draft when I graduated in 63, but uh, the clubs tend to have regional focus and Cooney Wilder, our coach, had been the coach of the Bruins. So there was a rapport there. And we discussed whether I would go to the Bruins tryout camp in August of 63. And I came to the conclusion I had at best a 50% chance of making that team, which was the worst team in the NHL and the worst position was defense. And I played defense. And I, I weighed 150 pounds and I just spent almost two weeks in hospital with mononucleosis. I'd worked very hard my senior year on my thesis and so on. So I was operating on about three or four hours sleep a night and, you know, mind over matter, you think at 20 or 21, you know, you can do anything, but uh, I was exhausted. And um, just talked to the coach, said, coach, you know, this likelihood if I am asked to sign, I'll be in Providence, Rhode Island, playing for their AHL team and going to night law school at Rhode Island. Um, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. And so we decided that when I had a scholarship offer from Cambridge and I thought I better take that rather than staying here and going to the Harvard Law School or going to McGill in Montreal or University of Toronto because I'd lost, the Bruins would play on Sunday nights. I'd be in the gardens on Sunday night watching them and saying, you know, I could be out there. So I wanted to get far away from, from hockey. And also the notion of studying outside of Canada was really important to me to give a different perspective to my country at a, a really, really good university. And Cambridge was the same experience, you know, getting your head knocked off by people that are smarter, faster, quicker than you are. Those are good experiences. Um, so that's the reason for Cambridge. Absolutely. And that was actually my next question as well, because when, you know, what inspired you to go to, to, to go to Cambridge and have you having answered that it's, I think a lot of us can relate to that. Uh, those of us, whether we've, if, we, if we've gone to law, if we're currently in law school or have now graduated on from law school, it's, it's a very competitive environment. And, yeah. But it's also an environment where it really pushes you to become the best that you can possibly be sure. and more. Like when it, it's about breaking through your limits and being able to test what you believe and test what you think and test what you know at such a high level. And I mean, that's something that law school provides that to a very high degree. Now, I'm not saying that other programs don't provide that. They, they certainly do. But in, especially in law, law is all about competing, uh, competing legal theories, competing theories of, of, of how society runs and how you can combine those together and everything in between as well. So it's certainly a very enlightening experience. And I'm very sure it was no different back in, in your day as well. 
Well, I think that's a very good maxim for leadership is test yourself against the best you can find and develop a taste and a sense of what is excellent, what is good, and always enhancing your own talents, growing your talents. And you do that, you know, I'm 80 years old and I'm learning every day, um, probably learning more today than I, I did at 21. I think I've got more humility today about learning, but, but exposing yourself to what's really good uh, and being stretched and guess what, you know, your talents uh, become better, but never forgetting um, the fact that it's not all about you. Operating in the first person singular is unattractive. You have to operate from the first person plural. You move from I to we. And then, you know, the I has its satisfactions as your career is progressing and you reach plateaus and so on. But it's only satisfaction. I don't think it's innate happiness. The happiness or the real joy comes when you can forget about yourself as being the center of the universe and reach out and help, help other people who are trying to climb up the the second mountain from your perspective on the first mountain. And law gives you a good opportunity to that. It gives you an opportunity to be totally self-centered, to be the great big star, all ego. Um, or it can be a person that um, is a great team player in building a law firm, a great team player in serving your clients, and a great team player in serving the community and the needs of others. Absolutely. And there's the, the old saying goes, there's no I in team. So yeah. there's no I in teamwork. And, you know, it, it's absolutely. I, I think the the humility towards learning tends to come with age, tends to come with experience, right? And a lot, a lot of youngsters, such as myself, uh, I mean, if if some people might be calling me a twenty-five year old, they might start calling me old. I don't know why, but um, so, uh, sometimes, so, or not sometimes, oftentimes, people in roughly in my age group, there's, I mean, not to say that we don't, we we don't operate selflessly, but there's still, you know, for us at this age, we're trying to, you know, prove ourselves, especially in a very competitive job market or a very competitive situation or legal industry. We want to put ourselves out there. And a lot of that involves us individually. But at some point, like you said, there, we have to incorporate the, the we into it. And that's very difficult, especially in a time where law is becoming increasingly competitive uh, with time. And especially now with COVID, it's a very, very difficult thing to do. So how would we be able to do that, you know, as, as individually and foster a more collaborative legal environment? Well, it may get easier as you get older. And, and when you reach that stage where life does not totally center around you, that usually means that very often when you get married, and especially when you have children, all the important things in life I've learned from my children, our five daughters and now from 14 grandchildren. And I mean that quite realistically. Um, one, seeing the world through their lens and the world will leave to my, our children and our grandchildren, but also their curiosity and, and how, they, how they see it. So, you know, I come back to the notion, my wife would say, um, learning how to say I'm sorry is pretty important or um, I need your help is pretty important. You know, increasingly, I often use the expression, I don't know when people ask me a question or we're in a discussion and, um, things are either poorly explained or they're beyond my depth. And I would say, um, just consider me simple-minded, explain this more simply. Um, uh, I think that often advances the conversation. And if you really want to engage with other people, you find the kind of trust relationship where you can explain your thoughts, but you can uh, encourage them to explain theirs and you develop a listening mode and all of a sudden good karma occurs between the two of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 
the art of communication is such an art that I think my generation has, we still have it, but that art of communication is kind of fading a little bit because of just the plethora of ways that we communicate now. Nowadays, we've got cell phones, we've got text, we've got social media, we've got everything in between that as well. And a lot of that communication, that person-to-person involvement, that person-to-person communication is lost in, in, in the sense that a lot of us don't even feel comfortable to necessarily talk in person. And that intergenerational gap, from what I've found, is, is, getting, is widening because a lot of people, not necessarily just in my generation, but in all different generations, there's been not necessarily a lack of understanding, but a general indifference towards understanding the rapidly changing circumstances of each generation. But I think this is this is a problem that uh, that we can easily fix. You know, just have an attentive ear and be able to listen to each other. Sometimes we, not sometimes, oftentimes we have to listen to others in the process. And listening is perhaps the most important thing. And listening as a moderator in a political debate, 1979-1984, I mean, you certainly had to do a lot of listening between historic figures on the debate stage. How did you manage to prepare for that? And how did you manage to prepare for those opportunities? Well, let me say two things, unless I agree with you about the importance of listening. And, you know, with the digital age, um, each individual has become their own broadcaster, their own voice. Uh, that's a new phenomenon. Um, and secondly, the time frames are very, very short. Uh, there's very little time for reflectiveness or contemplare meriorum, as you said uh, at the outset. Um, and so our, our ability to concentrate uh, is very shortened. As my grandmother used to say, you've got two eyes, God gave you two eyes and two ears and one mouth for a reason. Use them proportionately. Um, and that's the first step, I think, in engaging with another person is you listen to them uh, and you establish a rapport and then you begin to do some things together. Coming to moderating debates, I serve as the commissioner for the Leaders Debates Commission for the last debate in 2021 and in 2019, which the government set up because we, in 2015, um, the um, governing party did not participate in the English-speaking debate across the country. And there's a high degree of uncertainty about debates. They were negotiated between broadcasters and political parties, and it was a top negotiation with each party looking for their own interest, each party looking for the best advantage for their program and where they stood. And the broadcasters typically looking for um, the best entertainment they could find because they're supplanting their regular Thursday night, eight to 10 slot um, to entertain people with this. Um, And so I was thrust into the role of moderator because the debates consortium of several television networks and radio stations couldn't agree on a moderator. They each wanted their own. And so they decided they would go as far beyond television as they could and get a rank amateur. And I was the rank amateur. But the key to good moderating is to be a good listener and an enabler. You are not the actor. You are the person who's providing an opportunity for those leaders on the stage to demonstrate their own leadership qualities, their own the policies and of their particular party and what they're going to do and the kind of human being they are and how they react to the stress of encountering one with the other. But the engagement should be between and amongst the leaders. And it shouldn't be an engagement between the moderator, who's there as a facilitator, as an enabler, not the star of the show, and best the referee in the sidelines. 
And I think we sometimes make a mistake when we put moderators or journalists into the role of running a, a press conference or a scrum and cross-examining and attempting to get the gotcha moments when really what you want to be doing is to encourage the leaders to be debating among themselves to establish the differences in their position and the particular truth. Certainly. And of course, you don't have to, com- to comment on this particular, on these particular examples, but I mean, great examples of that. I mean, we saw, especially in the 1984 debate, the, a very memorable moment where Brian Mul- uh, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney was basically re- rebuked uh, Prime Minister John Turner, uh, saying that he had an option. He had an option yeah. to, to, to operate in the best interests of Canadians. And an apology for bantering about the subject. You, sir, owe the Canadian people a deep apology for having indulged in that kind of practice with those kinds of appointments. Well, I've told you and told the Canadian people, Mr. Mulroney, that I had no option. Well, you you had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada. And I am not going to ask Canadians to pay the price. You had an option, sir, to say no. And you chose to say yes to the old attitudes and the old stories of the Liberal Party. That, sir, if I may say respectfully, that is not good enough for Canadians. I had no option if I was able to... That is an avowal of failure. That is a confession of non-leadership. And this country needs leadership. You had an option, sir. You could have done better. Mr. Turner, your response. You know, he said it in a way that was forceful, but not insulting, right? And that and that's the art of communication there, right? You that's can. A, that's a really a very good observation. That was quite a famous moment in debates. Generally speaking, I don't think debates change positions a lot. I think they reinforce positions that voters had before they came in. But I think that one did, and you're quite right. That debate and the predecessor in '79 was were quite civil, um, with people not talking over one another and having time to develop their ideas. And that was a very good example because it came to the third half hour of the two hour debate. And we this was with respect to appointment of ambassadors. Um, so it was a really a foreign affairs issue. And we'd covered that in the second half hour of the debate, foreign affairs, and it had come up in the first uh, half hour as well about the appointment process um, and the Mr. Turner stepping in as prime minister for Mr. Trudeau and why he he honored the recommendations he was making for those positions. So they already had had at that twice and it came up the third time and Mr. Turner actually reintroduced the topic. And I was about to interfere and say, uh, we've covered this topic already two times. Let's move on to uh, to economic matters or healthcare or whatever the stuff it was. And, and I just paused a little bit and I was getting signals on my television display from the from the boot and I you normally you ignore that because you just can't manage that kind of thing but uh, they an indication that you know this was a telling moment and so the question was put quite in a sense politely but forcefully and it was a difficult one Uh, but I think the the observation you made was very important that was a highly civilized um, forum with ample opportunity for all three of those leaders to really show who they were and what they were and to engage with one another. And um, we just did a um, a survey of the number of questions that were asked um, in those earlier debates in the late 70s and early 80s. And the average, I think, was eight or nine. The last debate in 2021, it was 40. You can't cover that many questions or issues uh, in two hours. You've got to have more time for reflections and more time for back and forth. Wow. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and I think maybe that's an indication of what we were speaking about earlier, this age of instant opinion um, and quick reaction uh, and move, move on almost frenetically. You need more time to reflect and to savor and to engage sometimes, uh, you know, strongly, but in civil society, uh, you've got the right to your opinion. You express it and I'll express mine. And we may end up not agreeing with one another, but we say, um, I acknowledge the importance of you having a chance to present your views. Yes, absolutely. And I think this is a lesson that many of us have to relearn because it's very easy to disagree with somebody and say, oh, I hate you. I hate everything about you. I, I, I don't want anything to do with you. You're not my friend. You're not my colleague. You're, you're my sworn enemy. But hold on. Just because you disagree with somebody on that one point doesn't mean that that person is, <laughs> is a bad person. It, there, there are going to be differences in philosophy, and especially in law school and, and in the practice of law. It, it's all about that debate. It's about representing your clients and representing what's their respective interests. There are going to be instances, instances where you will disagree, but you know, as yeah, not, you can disagree without being disagreeable. And we have a wonderful custom in the law. I'm not sure it's observed as much today as it should be. And it was in the past. And that is in court, we refer to one another as my learned friend. Uh, and it's a convention and so on. And it doesn't mean that you've got three PhDs in ancient legal history, um, but it's a matter of respect. And, you know, there, there, there have been customs, and I think they still exist, where um, counsel for the plaintiff and counsel for the defense having been pretty rigorous with one another in cross-examination and so on, uh, you'll go out for dinner afterwards um, and uh, talk about the law. Probably not that case, but the law. And that's, that's what a... Um, that's what a good professional association is about. And that's what professionalism is all about. You know, just to expand on that, I worry a bit about the suppression of uh, a broad, diverse speech and views on our university campuses. We all want to work at being ensuring that those are bastions of freedom, where freedom of expression is important. And if, if they're silly thoughts, um, deal with them as silly thoughts. Let, let the silly thoughts be uttered and let the silliness know. Um, give opportunities for different views and, and counter them in the kind of marketplace of ideas rather than shouting down and shouting out or shouting down or excluding it. Yes, yes, I, I, I completely agree. And that's, again, this is something that, that we all need to re relearn because the thing is, again, when you, have a, when you have a different opinion, I mean, yeah, you can disagree with that opinion for sure. But first of all, you need to listen to that opinion and, and hear, what that, hear the contents of that opinion. Then you respond by saying, I disagree because da, 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 da. First of all, it gives you time to, to create a better, a stronger rebuttal with more information and more confidence. And number two, who knows? You may actually end up agreeing with that side's different opinion. You, sure. you never know, right? It, it, it's, you, you, how can you possibly know if you don't listen to that person or give that person the chance to speak, right? Sure. So, so, and that's the whole point of election debates. And these are such, again, very important lessons. And with you, you took all of these lessons, like all these, these important virtues, these important character traits. And I can imagine that it's because of this and so many other great things about your career that basically got you nominated for the governor general's office. I mean, de describe the moment that you got the call from Prime Minister Harper that you would be nominated for the governor general's office. What was it like? What was the feeling like? 
I'm not sure how frank I should be about the IMS, but uh, let me be uh, as candid as I can. I was sitting in my office at, at Waterloo and I got a call from the appointments uh, officer for the prime minister's office saying, would you be interested in being governor general? And I said, oh, gee, I had never thought of that. Uh, but golly, I've been a general manager of universities for 27, 28 years, first at McGill and now at Waterloo. I guess you can't do that forever. And I'll be a law professor when I step down. But I said, look, I know how these things go. You're putting together a long list. Just place some fluke. My name ended up on a short list and, you know, give me a call and I'll take it seriously. He said, okay, sir. And 10 minutes later, he called me back. He said, sir, it's a short list. Uh, uh, oh, I said, now I've got to take this seriously. I said, well, look, um, give me a five or six days. I usually any important decision like this, I have two or three friends that I consult with and my wife, of course. And oh, sorry, he said, you can't consult with anyone. I said, I can't consult with anyone. Well, I'll tell you this. If uh, I said, yes, I'm interested by some strange machination, you offered me the job and I went to Ottawa, I'd be going on my own. <laughs> my wife would pack my bags and that would be it. He said, sir, can I call you back? I said, okay. He called me back. He said, sir, it's a very, very, very short list. Discuss it with your wife, but but please, please don't speak to anyone else. He said, would you come up? I think it was a Thursday. He said, would you come up and have dinner with Mr. and Mrs. Harper on Saturday? So we came and met with Mr. and Mrs. Harper, who become became very good friends through the course of the time that uh, we were at Rideau Hall. And um, when we came in, Mr. Harper said, uh, well, David, I think you may be on side, but Sharon is the one we have to work on. So Sharon and Lorraine Harper went off to the RCMP stables where they have horses. They both love horses. And uh, they came back and Sharon says, Lorraine says, well, I think there's a place for Sharon's horse uh, if, uh, if she comes up <laughs> at the end of the evening. Um, Mr. Harper looked at Sharon and said, are you persuaded? And she said, uh, well, if my husband thinks that's what uh, he should do, then we shall do. So that's how it happened. Wow. That's, that, 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 that's amazing. That's amazing. And that's, and that's also, that's so, that's such an enlightening experience as well, because I mean, oftentimes people think, you know, when they, when they see, you know, these positions, prime ministers or presidents or governor generals or governors or whatever, they think of some grand, you know, epic movie, epic soundtrack, epic orchestral music coming in. No, it's actually, you know, in, it, it's just interpersonal interactions. Like, human, like, I mean, the people in power are like humans, like everybody else. And it's, it's also very comforting as well to, 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 to see that, to hear about this, this kind of experience. And you well, brought the this. Process, the process was, was really important. Uh, Amos and I, I speak about this. Um, Mr. Harper came into office and he set up a, a selection process for the office of governor general and subsequently for lieutenant governors, which are similar responsibilities. And it was five people, all who knew the position, knew the institution well, one had been a secretary in the office of governor general. Um, so these people, um, understood the job. And then they didn't call for applications or nominations. I guess they did their survey across the country. I think they began with Order of Canada lists. Um, and out of that, um, I think they presented two or three names to the Prime Minister as people that they thought would be appropriate. Um, and, and that's quite key, understanding what the job is and then having a very deliberate, thoughtful process of screening candidates and then doing your due diligence on them to be sure that um, there's nothing in the past that is going to be difficult and that they would come into that office um, with a great sense of you serve the institution. It's not about the personality. It's about the institution and making it better than it was when you leave it. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And that service had a beginning, October 1st, 2010. Describe the moment that you swore the oath and walked up to the throne and sat on the throne. Describe that moment when you began your official first day as governor general, that entire ceremony and everything afterwards. What was the experience like? Well, I guess one is thrilled to have the opportunity to um, to serve Canada in that way. And uh, first of all, it's a two-person job. You know, it was my wife and myself, and she's been my rock from since age 13 when I was her first date in high school. Um, so it was an experience for both of us. And, uh, you know, we were quite naive about the job and so on. Um, she was, um, one of the reasons she wasn't thrilled at the notion of moving from her wonderful horse farm in Waterloo and our great relationship with the university and the Mennonite community around us and all of those folks was that um, life was pretty good for her and the spotlight can be tough. It, it wasn't as much an issue for me because if you're a general manager of university for two or three decades, I mean, you, you learn to deal with those things. Um, so we were learning that together and, and she was just a brick all the way through. Beginning on that very first day, there's one scene where she actually tugs at the, I think the tail coat of my, my suit jacket because it was out of place or something, you know, right there in front of the cameras. And I'm sure uh, the daughters were there watching and saying, well, well, you know, good for mom. She's ensuring that he's properly dressed again. We all have the task of, of um, improving dad. And uh, she hasn't given up on this at this point. I think we were just thrilled to, to uh, have an opportunity to um, see this country as we've as we then saw it for the next seven years through a different lens and realize how good it was. I've always thought of Canada as a really good country. Yes, of course, with some challenges and problems, but if you look around the world, I don't think there's another country that can touch us in terms of our respect for equality of opportunity and a consideration of the other. Um, we have some faults, but, uh, and I think we, I became even more convinced during the course of those seven years, beginning with that first first day in the seat in the Senate chambers, where my installation address was entitled a smart and caring nation, a call to service. Um, and that smart and caring, both adjectives reinforcing another are quite key to the idea of Canada. I wrote a book called The Idea of Canada in our second year in office, which just tries to capture that. And, um, and that, um, I think, was, you know, very much a part of what the Office of Governor General is all about. Absolutely. And my next question was, what was a day in the life of the governor general office? What is a day like there? Like, what do you, what is your typical daily routine at your job as governor general? Well, it's, it, it's, um, <clears throat> it's a job where the most important thing you have to do is to manage your time appropriately. Uh, because you've got four or five different sections of the office, all of whom understandably want your time and have your, we try to keep the calendar or the day book uh, in the hands of just two people, but all with time on that. So you can be pulled in many different ways and you have to describe and keep priorities. Uh, and we worked at that, although uh, my day usually begins with exercise in the morning. And I found that would get crowded out. We'd often, you know, be up at 6 a.m. in um, the airport and on a plane at 6.45. Fortunately, the RCF flew us wherever we went which was absolutely marvelous because uh, you use your time efficiently, but you know, you'd get on that plane and you'd be in Vancouver, Calgary, 
Regina, Winnipeg, uh, and then home, you know, at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, um, that'd be a traveling day and you'd cover all those places, but um, you had, you know, the, the travel um, vehicle that permitted you to do this, but, but they were busy days. And uh, we, after I did my morning exercise, at the, I weren't out of the office, uh, we'd sit down with the, the secretary of the office again, General, uh, Governor General Stephen Wallace, who actually ran the place, and, and we would go through priorities. And typically, we would meet at least uh, two or three times a week with the senior team to talk about priorities and so on. And then it would be a schedule of events, both uh, um, within Rito Hall and visiting around Ottawa or elsewhere. Um, we did 56 different country visits uh, during the seven years. So that, that was a, a wonderful but time-consuming exercise. Typically, they were three to six days, and we'd go with a delegation of 25 or 30 people. Um, so those would be extensive things that took a lot of uh, arrangement. Um, and um, travel across the country was a major one, and a lot of events uh, at Reno Hall. And typically, the events would be evening events, so it meant that your evenings were occupied as well. Wow, that is a very busy schedule, but a very meaningful schedule as well. And during your time as Governor General, as you mentioned, traveling to all these different countries, 56 different countries during your time, one of those, of course, has to be the UK. And on, I would imagine, multiple occasions, you would meet and work with Her Majesty the Queen. She's extraordinary, analyst. I've uh, done a, an essay for a book that comes out um, next spring to celebrate the 70th anniversary, the Platinum Jubilee of Her Majesty on the Throne, and its reflections on Queen Elizabeth. And uh, Michael Jackson is the editor. Michael is the president of the Institute for the Study of Crown at Massey College at University of Toronto. And when he, Michael asked me to do it, um, I said no. And I'd done other things, writing prefaces for other books that Michael and the Institute have published. Um, but I, I was working on deadlines on two books of my own, one a law book and the other a sequel to the trust book called Empathy. Um, and um, about three o'clock in the morning, I woke up and... <laughs> said, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> you, you can't shirk that. So I got up in the morning and said, look, I'll, I'll write a forward to the essays when they're there. Uh, and that may be helpful. He got back. He said, well, yeah, that's great. But we, you know, you've had a chance to get to know the Queen Elizabeth, but we'd like to know more about her as a person. So I've done that essay. It'll come out in April, May. You can have a look at it then. And, um, and with the personal reflections of Her Majesty, I began with uh, the first time I came into her ambit as governor general. It was June 2010 at a reception of the Royal York Hotel. Prince Philip and the Queen were on a Canadian tour and there were 200 or so guests coming through a receiving line. And as we came through, this was June, um, she shook our hands and, and said hello. And then as we left her, she said, I look forward to seeing you very soon in almost a whisper. And I realized she uh, was the only person in that room, along with her husband and her private secretary, who knew that I had been nominated and she had accepted a recommendation that I be governor general. Oh. <laughs> uh, Prime Minister and his wife knew it, and clerk knew it in the selection committee, but, but it was a cone of silence. And it was a wonderful, touching thing because it was so gracious. I look forward to seeing you soon. Um, yeah. And then we were lucky because the custom is you go... Um, to the UK before you're sworn in, so the Queen can present you with your official charter and send the medals and so on. Um, and that kind of makes it official. Um, and typically that's tea at Buckingham Palace, or if you're really lucky, maybe lunch. Well, they 
take the month of August at Balmoral Castle in the Scottish Highlands. And they invited us for the weekend um, in August to, to be there. And it was extraordinary. It's a, about a 50,000 acre estate. So they secure the perimeter. But at the castle, which is really just an old manor house, not grandiose at all, it's very, very informal. And we'd come with every stitch of formal clothing you can imagine, et cetera. And we're sitting around the table Friday evening, Queen and Prince Philip, Sharon and myself, and she is setting out the next day for us. And she says, Sharon and I will be in the stables in the morning. They both love horses. The Queen loves horses. The Queen will take a call from her horse manager long before she'll take a call from the Prime Minister. And... <laughs> Sharon's big smile, delighted. And then she looked down at her feet. She says, but, but, but I, I, I don't have any casual shoes. And Prince Philip, who doesn't miss a beat, looked down at his, her, Sharon's feet and the Queen's feet. And she says, same size, my dear, I think. And the Queen went up to her bedroom and came back with a pair of brogues that Sharon wore for the whole weekend. Wow. And that was the mark of the graciousness and the informality and the... Uh, the wonderful uh, qualities of these two people who we see as very formal and very distant and rather remote. Um, and in person, they are down to earth, uh, unpretentious, gracious, funny as can be. Um, and um, when we left, um, they greeted us on the porch as if we'd been you know, friends for years and years and years. And um, the Queen said, uh, I do read letters, you know. And I said, well, Your Majesty, if you do, I will write you letters. And when you find them dull and boring, let me know and I'll cease and desist. So I would write a letter to her every quarter or so and still follow the custom a little bit. And um, um, they're not the typical diplomatic letters. They're kind of a vignette on Canada, etc. And... Uh, we uh, began an exchange program after that visit with the senior staff of uh, Rideau Hall with Buckingham Palace and vice versa to get more people knowing one another peer to peer. And our uh, wonderful director of programs um, and ceremonies was there for a week and the queen had her in for tea at the end of her exchange week um, and um, said, um, you know, I'd be very grateful, uh, Ms. McIntyre, if you would uh, advise the Governor General how much I appreciate his letters to me. And Christine was very pleased by that. She said, but would you express my special thanks to his administrative assistant who types his longhand writing so that I find it actually legible? That was the way. <laughs> so I, I actually wrote that and three or four other vignettes of the Bill Worrell situation, um, situation the, and the exchanges in the, uh, these reflections. And when I finished, I thought, oh my, uh, I've um, I've trespassed on the convention of, of privilege of silence with the queen. Right. And then uh, as I was doing this, it was my 80th birthday and I knock on the door, I'll show you, this is a the box that came to me then. I don't know the camera shows this, but I was doing this red box. Um, right. Prime Minister, I stepped down. That's a replica of Queen Elizabeth's red box, which is in, in things. But in this smaller box is uh, a book called Letters from a Nation. And it's exactly the same color, style, print, etc., of the book I wrote, The Idea of Canada Letters to a Nation, which were letters to different individuals alive and, and posthumously about Canada. But this, the Rita Hall staff collected letters from 80 people across the country to me, I guess, about my service and so on. 
And the very first one is a letter from the Queen for this book. If I can find it here, I'll show it to you on the screen if it picks it up. You can't really read the writing or not, but there it is. It shows Buckingham Palace. And it says, you know, um, on the occasion of your 80th birthday, I'm pleased to send you my congratulations together with my warmest good wishes for your continued health and happiness. I have happy memories of our meetings over a number of years, especially your visit to Balmoral in 2010. And I thought, you know, I think she's given me permission, particularly memorable visit to Balmoral in 2010. And I was telling some stories about Balmoral and the graciousness of the two of them that I had liberty to to print that so that's in that essay sorry for the long story but it tells you a bit about the queen oh no no worries that i think everyone's going everyone appreciates that story and it's 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 great it's uh it, it gives us a side into the into the her majesty that we don't typically see you know in the media or in other types of outlets like this is a very very different a very very also warm uh a very warm story to 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 know about her majesty and just the kind of person that she is. And that that's great. I think everyone would certainly enjoy it. And, you know, looking back on the seven years that you served as governor general, what are the most profound things that Canada faced? And what are the things that you miss the most from your time as governor general? Well, at first, experience, I guess I come back to Her Majesty in this reflections that I did. It was really three themes. One was the graciousness of Her Majesty, which people wouldn't have a chance to understand. But it, it's more than skin deep. And the second is steadfast duty. This is a person that just lives, breathes, eats duty, service, the sense of service. And she epitomizes the leader of servant notion. That the leader is servant. The leader is not top of the pyramid issuing commands. The leader is serving others. And the third is her faith. I'm a lay reader in the Anglican Church. Faith is very important to me. But she has, faith has been her rock. And um, uh, that's Christian faith and mine's a Christian faith. But there are other faiths that serve as our moral compasses. And that's been very important to me and, and very much reinforced by Her Majesty. With respect to the what we've seen in Canada, you know, we, we live in a more fragile world, I think, today than we did 10 or 11 years ago. Um, one of the things that motivated us to write the book on trust was my concern about a continuing erosion of trust in our public institutions. Um, and that's not simply government, but it's non-governmental organizations, it's business, it's media, and so on. Um, and what we must do to, to, to reinforce and rebuild trust and redefine it for the modern age. And bear in mind that trust comes in on foot and goes out in a horseback. Or as Mark Carney says, trust goes out in foot and comes, goes out in a Ferrari. Um, we've become much more focused on the I and much less on the we. Um, and to me, that notion of restoring the equilibrium of moving from the first person singular to the first person plural is quite important and quite important for the nation. And that's the smart and caring nation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I read, I had the privilege of reading a part of the, uh, a part of the reports that the Rideau Hall Foundation has also released, and it also explains the same the same point. That the 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 issue is that we have a an eroding trust in public institutions, and a part of that, some of that could be some of the the, the I wouldn't I don't want to use the word blame, but it's a, it's a bit negative. But some of the some of the, some of the the issues, some of the reasons why this is the case can be placed on the institutions. But some of it is also culturally as well. We as Canadians as well. I found that 
over time, and this is something that Mr. Martin, Mr. Paul Martin, uh, who I had also earlier on the show, something that he, that he mentioned, he found that during his father's time and during his time in politics as, as prime ministers, as prime minister, the the political culture was a lot healthier. But yeah. nowadays, and it, even as early as when he was just about to leave office, he found that friendships across political lines were being were being lost. They were being broken. The fights became a lot more personal, and the kind of harmony, the kind of 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 the art of communication, has been lost over the last fifteen or so years. And I think this is something that that has to be changed on a cultural level. And we we, we explored this earlier on today in today's episode, where we were talking about the art of communication and the art of of civil disagreement. This is exactly what what a good example of something that has to be improved because I think we've lost a lot of that. And if we don't have civil disagreement in our public institutions, regardless of what that form can be, then that that translates into a bad image for Canadians and for also others outside of Canada looking into our institutions. They would think, oh, these guys are not, they're not, arguing a point civilly they're not considering a point civilly they're, they're not listening properly and, and they're talking a lot but they're not listening a lot and i think that's a huge important lesson that i will repeat from earlier in the episode we as canadians have to relearn the art of listening and the art of civil disagreement and that just because we disagree on something doesn't mean that that person is against everything that we stand for so and I think it's so important, and, and, and your, your report brings not necessarily everything I was saying up, of course, but brought up the, the first point of, well, the eroding trust in public institutions. And, and that's an important issue that we have to address. Sure, let me pick up a couple of threads there, Emma's. Uh, one is um, reference to the Rideau Hall Foundation. We set that up in 2012. I was installed in 2010 because we concluded that that a very traditional office like that with its legal responsibilities had a difficult time with being entrepreneurial and innovative and engaging with Canadians and developing collaborative partnerships and networks. So the foundation, which was independent of the office, but at its service uh, was designed to do that. And it was to uh, really reinforce fundamental Canadian values. So focusing on leadership, on uh, learning, on uh, innovation, and on philanthropy, those four areas. And it, we, it's really flourished since then. We're celebrating our 10th anniversary this next year. And uh, I'm really excited about where we've come from and what, what we're doing. Secondly, um, the, the first book I wrote when I was uh, in uh, Rideau Hall is the idea of Canada, which set out some of the ideas we've discussed in, the, in the, what I regard as, as the smart and caring nation. And then we did two books on innovation. That's the smart part, is being curious and always thinking of doing things better. That's what innovation means. One was an adult book that collected stories of Canadian innovators over the centuries, including pre-European stories, which are really pretty fascinating. And then we did a children's edition of it with more pictures and so on. And those books are in all the high schools and colleges across the country. And we developed teaching lessons around them. And then we did a book on trust. And the, the motivation for that was the concerns that you've just expressed. But we were looking at trust then on the macro level and the national level of these institutions. And then we said, well, where does, where does trust come in those institutions? Well, it comes 
from regions, it comes from communities, it comes from businesses, it comes from associations and non-governmental at the more local level. And where do those elements of trust come? They come from the individual. So we reverse the arc of the book and the first part is how do I be a trustworthy person? And the second arc is how do I establish trusting relationships in my family, my community, my regions, my cities, my towns, my business, et cetera. And the third is how we project that to a nation um, with some uh, 20 different ideas of how we go about building and reinforcing trust. The book we're working on now is a sequel to trust called Empathy. Um, and that's another feature of truth and empathy are two sides of the same coin, I think. But empathy is not sympathy. Sympathy is I, I see your plight and I feel sorry for you. Empathy is I see and understand your plight and I come and walk on your shoes together and we do something about it. Um, and that, that's a bit of a challenge to Canada to see truth and empathy together. I quote from, um, from um, George Schultz, who is the remarkable U.S. statesperson, Secretary of Labor, Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of, of uh, State, that is external affairs, uh, a champion in that respect, a champion in business. He headed the Bechtel Corporation, a large construction engineering firm. And he was dean of the business school at the University of Chicago, that famous place indeed. And um, it was picked up in his obituary, but he once said, trust is the coin of the realm. When you have trust in the room, whether it's the family room, the boardroom, the training room, the military room, everything goes well. And when you don't, it doesn't. Everything else is detail. And I really believe that the trust and empathy are two sides of the same coin. And the wedge between them is hope. It provides hope for the future. Yes, absolutely. That is an extremely important lesson. Also, as, as every other lesson that we've talked about in, in today's, today's conversation as, as well, the ability to have trust and the ability to have empathy, that is something that is so important in the legal practice as well. Trust, empathy, and attentiveness are three important tenets of not just, honestly, not even just the legal practice, but really any profession in general and, and anything that you do as well. As I mentioned in my episode with, with Mr. Martin, before you tackle the big problems, before you tackle the big ponds, the big oceans, first, you got to tackle the small ones, the small ponds, the small oceans. And like you said, Mr. Johnston, it's about being able to encourage trust between your, well, trusting yourself, trusting the people around you, your family, trusting your friends, then trusting your community, enabling that trust in that community then moving on to the, to the country, and then moving on to the world. And the reason why this point is so important is because, especially for a lot of people in the younger ages, we have this notion of, oh, we want to change the world. But how can you change the world if you can't even change yourself? Well, you start at home, you start with yourself. And let me just end, and we should end this podcast now, Amos, with uh, three uh, vignettes or theories. One is your reference to the pond, um, I speak of acts of kindness and acts of generosity like a pebble in a pond. And what happens is that pebble creates ripples across the pond. And that's what we do with those small beginning acts. We create ripples, we change the culture of the water and we change the culture of our society. The second thing is the notion of belonging and dependence upon and respect for others. Actually, I believe comes at birth. And so 
The inscription to the trust book reads for children who offer their trust implicitly in the full expectation of fairness. And we should live by that. And the third thing I would say, and this is probably more the innovation, but it has to do with uh, the aspirations for us as a nation, as a country that is smart and caring both, comes from them. George Bernard Shaw's his play Superman, I think, who said, some people see things as they are and wonder why. We dream of things that ought to be and ask why not. That first sentence is the kind of curiosity, understanding your world. The second is really powerful. We dream. That's the aspiration. That's the vision of things that ought to be. That's the moral compass. And ask why not. That's the call to action. Why not? Certainly a, a very important virtue to end on today's conversation. This has been, Mr. Johnson, this has been such an enlightening conversation and a great conversation. Thank you so much. And on behalf on, on behalf of the entirety of the Law School Show, thank you so much for taking the time to appear on the show and offering and telling your stories and offering such important lessons, not only for the practice of law and the study of law, but for living life in general. The, these are very important virtues that we should be reminded of. And once again, we appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Well, let's let me end, Amos, with the uh, Amos, with the uh, the notion of does law work? Does law work? And our professional oath that we take when we are sworn in, and that is to improve the administration of justice, which is fairness. And we have an obligation as lawyers, with our very special skills, uh, to be able to say, does this law, this particular law I'm working on, or my particular focus in law, my expertise, is it working? Is it working for fairness and justice? And if it isn't, then we begin to cast our pebbles in the pond. Absolutely. And that is the philosophy of law as philosophy and action. So important and greatly appreciated. Once again, thank you so much, Mr. Johnson, for coming on to the show. And thank, and thank you also to everyone listening to and watching this episode of The Law School Show. This has been the Right Honorable David Johnston, Canada's 28th Governor General, who was my guest on the show. You can find out more about the Rideau Hall Foundation, I'll, and I'll leave some links to that in the description as well, and I'll also leave leave links to, to, to his books as well that he has mentioned in today's podcast as well. Once again, thank you so much for listening to and watching this episode of The Law School Show. Tune in next time as we have another great guest coming on. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.